Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is an ABC podcast. So this tweet caught my eye during the week uh, from somebody called AFL Integrity Unit. They said, considering all the hard work Foxtel did cross-promoting Game of Thrones, very disappointed to see not a single AFL reference in today's episode. Would it have really been that hard for Arya to mention how excited she was by the new 666 starting positions? (laughs) And I must admit, it got me thinking about what the views of various Game of Thrones characters might be about footy at the moment. Like I must say, I reckon the Night King would be very keen on a night grand final. I feel like the hound would really appreciate that you can actually take a grab, not just tap it down in the ruck these days. <laughs> I actually think it's interesting that even North Melbourne got an elephant. <laughs> and I think dragons could easily mark at the highest point. The audience is Hodor because when we say ball, it's like we're saying Hodor. Oh, ball, ball, ball. We're so conditioned ball to say ball. ball our whole life. Good plan, good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum there is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. And the final groundbreakers, history makers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am your host, Emma Race, and I'm so pleased to be here with my football-loving Sanctum sisters from the Outer. Hi, I'm Arya Stark. <laughs> oh, sorry, Kate's here. <laughs> Lucy Ray's here. Nicole Hayes. Jon Snow. Uh, Alicia, sometimes here. You know nothing. (laughs) (laughs) What a slap down. Um, It's so nice to be back with you for another week. On today's podcast, I'm so excited. We are speaking with Anna Scully, who is the partner for Eddie Betts. And I can't think of anyone who has probably had to weather the storm of social media and language more than Anna Scully and Eddie Betts. I don't think that there's much purpose in waiting. There was an omen watch this week and I don't think there's any point in holding off on it. Let's lead with it. Kate Sear, you're the only person that can deliver it unto Mm. us, omen watch. Yeah, it's basically omen watch combined with a public service announcement for all football fans across the nation. So I was on the way to the Hawthorne St Kilda game on the weekend and I saw a terrible, terrible sight and that was a Hawthorne supporter with the Hawthorne scarf out the window of their car on the way to the game before the game had started. And I said to you all, it's game over. Uh, They've cursed us. It's jinxed us. So just as a public service announcement to all football fans going forward, you never, ever fly the scarf out the window before the game, only after. That's tempting the wrath upon atop of the higher thing, <laughs> as Toby right. says. <laughs> Mordor, the Eye of Sauron, all of those all things of them. coming down on <laughs> the team. Anyway, congratulations, St Kilda. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I feel like um, I haven't tested it, but my jurisdiction as number one ticket holder of Hawthorne should mean that I should be able to sanction 
Should I be able to sanction mm. that supporter if we can find them? That's I think two we weeks. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say microwave their membership, strip them of their membership. Oh, yeah. That's harsh. It's a loss to St Kilda people. <laughs> um, I just wanted to say we saw McAvoy had the headband on, and this isn't a Hawthorne podcast, just an FYI, but we did talk about the McAvoy headband. He already had the Elastoplast headband. I'm now thinking that it actually holds his head together. He has a flip-top head. He requires the Elastoplast to tape his head on every day. Um, but in thinking about that, I did see some and people going off with the blood rule over, over the weekend and I recalled that they rip two tampons in half and stick them up the nose and then they do the Voldemort tape. They cut off the little teeny tiny pale blue string, I think, beforehand, <laughs> or if you're wearing a mini, a pale, a pale pink one. They cut that off before they stick it up the players' noses, but I have quantified, and this could be a period watch for anyone playing along at home, that we will know that the AFLM is totally woke when instead of sticking a tampon up your nose, they're sticking two little moon cups up there. <laughs> Do you know, I mean, I'd progress. See that. That'll be progress. All right, let's. who's ready to melee? Because there's been some big things happening I will say this, without this being a Game of Thrones <laughs> fan podcast. Too late for that. Too late. <laughs> is that when they were doing the AFLM stuff with the Game of Thrones, I was like, nah, AFLM isn't Game of Thrones. AFLW is Game of Thrones. And trade week in the AFLW is the Red Wedding because <laughs> there is just massacres <laughs> happening everywhere. We have seen captains leaving clubs. Leah Kasler has been another one this week. She's gone across to the Gold Coast. Tiana Ernst, not a captain, but she's gone from the Bulldogs to the Gold Coast. People are making huge plays. And, of course, the big one was, it's troubling for me, Sabs is now a tiger. Mm. She's gone from a lion to the tiger and my... Oh um, neural cortex <laughs> is all peeing in the wrong direction because you know I don't know my lines from my tigers. I had a little thing for you to remember it by and you just need to, every time you see Sabs, lions to tigers, no bears. Well, of course, that Brisbane used help to. Me <laughs> lions help. to tigers, now no I'm bears. Oh, I thought I knew them. Can I put you on the spot, Nicole Hayes, oh, and just ask oh, yes. you. I knew this was coming. Given that Sabrina... Frederick Traub has now declared her hand and mm. she is a tiger. Mm. Who do you barrack for? Are you a Brisbane Lions fan or you are you on board the tiger train? Do you know how much hate mail I'm going to get no matter what I answer? <laughs> no. Like there is no winning this question. I have to say the local component. Oh, hello. With the Peggy O'Neill and the Sabs and Katie Factor. Look at Tess Armstrong, and got super Tess, producer. She's dancing in the Tess background. Tess is dancing. It's very hard not to lean towards yellow and gold. Yellow and gold. Yellow, yellow and black. black. Plus You'll have song. to learn that's wow. the song. It's a good song. It's a good song. I think you should stand up proudly because one thing I wanted to talk about today is loyalty. I have seen people saying there's no loyalty in AFLW and I think that we cannot use the prism of either the men's game or what's gone before in discussing loyalty and placing that, using that as the telescope through which we see the AFLW and that goes for fans and it goes for players. What I would urge people to do, and I did post something um, this week on Instagram which found, it found its audience, that's for sure, loyalty, the quality of being loyal a strong feeling of support or allegiance. Moving to Victoria away from family when AFLW didn't exist just to get better game experience in VFLW, quitting your job to concentrate on an eight-week competition, rebuilding your body and your game when dropped from the AFLW to fight back for a spot in the AFLW and then being named All-Australian and Club BNF, dealing with the trolls, the haters and the gendered abuse, postponing motherhood for the chance to play, playing women's footy when it wasn't cool and in fact drew derision and homophobic slurs and abuse, being forced out of the game because 
because of your gender when you were a teen and fighting to have the legislation changed. Accepting that you had to give up the game, then busting your ass after interrupted pathways to get back into the game. Wearing financial loss and stunted career progression just to play. Watching your brothers get the opportunities you dreamed of and not having any hard feelings about it. Playing on the worst grounds in jumpers and shorts and shoes designed for men and not having access to change rooms after training or games. Working all day, training until 10, going home to wash your one training kit, try and see your family and loved ones while people online mock the scores and the skills and the right of women to play. Making your own choice to take an opportunity of interest and benefit to you in an environment that cannot support you full time and having your loyalty questioned. The AFLW is built on loyalty. The loyalty of the players who believed in women's football way before many of us fans did. Loyalty is the kindling that started the flame that is AFLW. Don't for one second question the loyalty of these players. And I would implore you all to think with a really open mind about what people have sacrificed to be playing this game and bringing this game to us. And if moving clubs makes life a little bit easier for them to be able to keep playing in what might be the last two or three years of their careers, then I think we just have to support them on that. You can't have a conversation about loyalty without actually thinking about the whole person. I heard, you know, some criticism about Leah Kasler um, ostensibly because, you know, another captain moving to another club. One of the things that you have to remember is, say, in that particular case, that Leah lives on the Gold Coast. Rather than having a three-hour round trip to training, that makes life a lot easier for her. And as a part-time athlete, that's important. I think it was also really tricky listening to ex or current AFL, well, mostly ex-players and commentators, not to recognise that they're speaking from such an enormous place of privilege. You know, for even these players to have a livable wage would be an extraordinary thing. And their loyalty has already, as Em said, been demonstrated to the game. But all they owe loyalty to is themselves and whoever they consider their family, the people who have really been there for them. They've got such a short window to make the most of this moment. Even you typical AFL M players careers about six years so given the lack of conditioning and and that many have come in at the end you know you're looking at much shorter than that and I just want to see these women make the most of their opportunity and be the best player that they can be and that will be wherever they find themselves. Kasler also said it exacerbated her injuries as well like she had a sore back and just the travel I mean but the one thing I think I'm in heartened by is that most of the supporters of the AFLW are so loyal to the AFLW and that they aren't the ones having the conversation about players. It is overwhelmingly the case that we're behind whatever the players are doing. It's just those few and they're loud and I think they should consider all the things you're talking about, Em. You're so right, Alicia. It's the commentators, it's the people who commentate and talk about this game who I have never seen at an AFLW game. They're the ones that are being vocal about loyalty. Something interesting that I heard a few weeks ago was Julia Kiera on this AFL Life podcast and she talked about the experience of being um, a welfare manager in an AFLW club and it is a fascinating and insightful conversation that really illuminates the pressures on AFLW players. That's something that's often missing from the conversation. In other AFL news this week, it seems conferencing is going nowhere, Alicia. Yeah, it's an interesting decision that they're going forward with so much criticism, I suppose. There is some support, but there's a lot of people saying that they wish it was different, but it 
at this stage, there's nothing that they can do uh, and they're not making changes. There was an interesting article uh, in one of the papers this week that mentioned that, you know, some teams may suffer for this, and but we've talked about this so often and that clubs could end up um, dying out or disappearing. But as to our previous conversation, I don't think that's the case. So watch this space as far as change in the next few years. But what do we think I feel like sometimes the AFL come out and say, well, our hands are tied, mm. there's nothing we can do because of self-imposed yes. rules that they've placed <laughs> exactly. on the on the on what they anticipate to be. You know, when they go like, oh, well, this is our only budget and that budget mm. over there belongs to AFLX, we're like, we'll just change it. You get to choose whether you play each other or have a seri- final series. Why? Why do you have to choose those things? They're not mutually exclusive. You need a longer season, the yeah. end. Interestingly, looking on social media when that decision was announced or publicised, that conferencing would be retained. There was a lot of discussion about who makes those decisions and whether women in particular have a voice or women who play footy have a voice in those processes. So it's just worth going through who is on the AFLW competition committee because I do think it has a very wide membership, a broad membership of people that we respect and who are really knowledgeable. So the people on that committee are Simone Wilkie, who's an AFL commissioner, Nicole Livingston, Steve Hocking, Brett Murphy from the AFLPA, Phil Harper from Adelaide Crows, Lauren Arnell, Kane Little, who's the Carlton CEO, Cara Dunnellan, Mark Evans, Alan McConnell, Todd Patterson, who's the Melbourne AFLW list manager, Laura Kane, who we know from North Melbourne as the football ops manager, Peter Searle and Debbie Lee. So a lot of people with considerable experience who have made that decision and I think probably the unfortunate thing is that sometimes when those decisions are made, there's perhaps not as much information made publicly available as I would like about the deliberations and what factors were considered when it was made. I think maybe people might understand and perhaps even respect those decisions more if they were a little bit more transparent. Um, I'd like to hear more rather than less. Absolutely. And, you know, if Laura Kane, I mean, North missed out because of the conference system. If Laura Kane can stand by it, and you've got an issue with it, if as a North Melbourne fan, then ask her about it. Mm. Like, go to her. This is, like, there has been a push on, and I saw this thing on social media where people were saying the competition committee should be made up of people and they listed us. We are completely unskilled to do that. That is not our job. We do not have the skills to do it. Yes, we have an opinion. But just because our opinion is the same as yours doesn't mean that we would be skilled to make these decisions. The people on that competition committee have been selected for a reason. Now, if they're going to live and die, if they're going to put their name to these um, decisions, then go to them and ask them. I'm sorry for laughing. Just the way we order coffees is really funny. <laughs> so the way we'd make decisions about games. <laughs> yeah, and arguably we aren't skilled to do anything really, yeah, not, yeah. You know, not even this pod. Completely unskilled <laughs> for all of the jobs that we have. Nicole, you've seen AFLW actually make some changes in the community. Yeah, I'm noticing, look, these are small things, but um, I am noticing a normalising of women's football in the broader football conversation. There was a quote that really stood out to me recently in an aid article. Following Tom Doty in the season opener against Hawthorne and Erin Phillips and Chloe Shear in last Sunday's AFLW Grand Final, Paul Seedsman is the fourth ACL victim in 13 days at Adelaide Oval, leaving Pike searching for answers. So obviously this is right after the Grand Final. Setting aside the the horror of that, like that's a a whole conversation about ACLs and Adelaide Oval, what struck me is how smoothly and fluidly this aggregate of footballers incorporated W and M players. It was such a 
striking moment for me. And I've noticed that this is happening quite a bit, just in small moments. And I think we need to recognise that actually that since the grand final, and I trace it back to the grand final, there's been some a couple of really significant kind of shifts. For weeks afterwards, even now, we're having chats about how great Erin Phillips is and just in general football conversation by commentators and in the media. And by the end of the end of the AFLW season, and even now, all of the sort of mainstream footy shows, the AFL Sit 360s and Footy Classified and all those sorts of shows, are having segments dedicated to AFLW, including talking about the draft. So post-season, they're still actually incorporating content around um, women's footy. Bruce McAvaney, as we all, rem- all remember, mentioned the M, but also... Um, noted that when, I think it was with Seedsman again in the Crows match, when he was stretched off, how the actual Cats players, several of them came up to acknowledge him leaving. And and Bruce McAvaney connected that to the Aaron Phillips moment that we can all remember from the grand final. So it's just kind of amazing to see that there's a much overdue and belated and, and not big enough, but a legitimacy and um, an elevation of the women's game to be more broadly incorporated into the men's game. Yeah, it's interesting, Nicole. I remember last year when when the new tribunal rules came in, we talked about on this show the fact that a lot of the media talked about what would happen when Mr P made decisions for the first time under that system. And I remember saying that 19 19 women under the AFLW system had actually already been through the tribunal system and he'd made a whole bunch of decisions already. And so it's interesting to me that in just a year, Mm. that language and awareness of the fact that there's just been an entire competition unfold can shift so quickly. That's really promising. I also just want to give a little shout out to Sir Swamp Thing, who's a statistician that we follow on this pod. And I really enjoy the content that he puts out. And he has a habit of putting out content that mixes together stats from the men's and women's game. He often receives a lot of abuse, actually, for it when he might say that, you know, Aaron Phillips is the most number of possessions compared to Patrick Dangerfield or whatever it might be. But I like that he's made a habit of just putting that content out together, not necessarily to make any statement that Aaron Phillips is the greatest player of all time or whatever, but just the facts, mm. just essentially just the facts. I mean, I think it's surprising after three years. Like, I think mm. that's a pretty big headway into what has been, you know, 150 plus years of, you know, male-dominated conversation about a male dominant male game. But I think that the athleticism and the almost perfection of Erin Phillips really helps that conversation. She's a Trojan horse Mm -hmm. for this and she's really, she's holding up a mirror and she's the product of also coming from a football family that has respect in a football environment that has respect as well. Mm, And that 53,000 people is hard to ignore too. Moving to AFLM, really interestingly, um, there's been a lot of conversation about Ben Brown this, this week and you know I can't ever separate what happens on the ground and off the ground. So for me, he is a champion no matter what. And what's been really interesting is there was a moment where a commentator implored him to play like a man and that conversation was kind of around him perception that he was staging for free kicks. Ben Brown, just stand up and, and play like a man. He's allowed to touch you. Why are the umpires buying into that? Make a stand and say, Ben, that's not his set to stop staging or flopping for free kicks. So what's interesting about that is that the conversation has gone on. For me, it 
it diverges. There's one conversation which is about is it okay to say that he was staging or flopping for free kicks and that's been kind of the main part of the conversation but for me of course all I heard was play like a man Mm. and I can't think of a better role model for being a man than Ben Brown and of course we spoke to him and Hester his wife last year about their work on the gender action plan at North Melbourne. What did you guys make of that conversation Lucy? I feel like there's a real gap between the people who are talking about the game sometimes and and what we're seeing on the field because at the same time I'd really watched Callum Ward quite closely last weekend and when he was injured we saw images of him sitting on the bench and he was just devastated and crying as you know is completely acceptable and so he sat there crying like a man I thought that was really powerful at the end of the game we saw his teammates get up and hug him like a man and it was a beautiful photo of him with Phil Davis where they were embracing like men then when he had had some time to absorb his injury he he actually came out and put it all in perspective. He mentioned the story of a a mother who had been diagnosed with stage four breast cancer and how he had been really touched by her plight and by her story. And the quote from him on his Instagram was, this is such a small hiccup in my footballing journey. And Nicole puts everything into perspective for all of us. And I really loved that he was able to put his injury in perspective like a man. So everywhere I turned, I saw men doing men things in really different ways. I guess I was then struck by the very narrow idea of what the commentator was actually drawing on in that moment. Not this week, but last week gone, I was at the footy and I sat next to an older gentleman who'd played for Western Bulldogs in the 80s. I won't say his name, but he was an absolute gentleman, a lover of AFLW. In fact, when I spoke to him his about the women's footy, his eyes lit up and he gave me play-by-play the grand final and he was talking about moves and, and he had a chance to be at the final and he was telling me about that. We were It was North Melbourne Hawthorne. He was telling me about some you know, some players he loved in North and that was really good. His language, his whole, uh, you know, manner was amazing and he was there with his father who must have been very elderly and they were just champs. In front of us was this guy who kept shouting, and this is before that instance, stop being a girl, would you stop being a girl? And he screamed. He was a North Melbourne supporter, nothing on North Melbourne supporters, Uh, but he stood up and he kept screaming at his own players. That's a whole pod in itself is who screams at your own players. But he was screaming at his own <laughs> players. Like, it really is. He was so gendered and he kept saying, you're such a girl, you're such a girl, what the hell are you doing? There was expletives. But it just made me see, back in the 80s when I used to go to the footy and 90s, that would have been perhaps more tolerated, mm. perhaps even more just like, okay, this is something I have to put up with at the footy. Every single person around him told him to sit down and shut up and that women are amazing and that if if so-and-so player kicked more like a girl, he'd be kicking goals that wow. day. And so there was a lot of people in support. I also, when it came to the language, was thinking about how many implications there are layered into that particular expression to be a man. And it stood out to me when Brad Scott came in uh, in defence of Ben Brown, uh, ostensibly in defence, 
and I'll just quote him for a minute. He said, when you say be a man, it oversteps the mark, you're questioning his integrity. And there was something about that that kind of riled me. And I had a look at the definition of what it is to to be a man. And it is to show the qualities um, such as strength and courage that men are traditionally supposed to have. While I agree that that's true, it makes it sound like this is exclusive to a man. And not... Was that in a dictionary? It, it was. I dictionaried it. Yes. Can we get that changed? Yeah, I know. And I think that this is a thing, this language, be a man, play like a girl, all of that stuff. It's not about, let's forget about whether you apply it because it's questioning a player's anything. Let's just stop saying it. Let's get that language out of our lexicon. For me, it's just like, just be a person, whatever that might, whatever that might entail. What troubled me most when I heard that language was, you know, as you're saying, what it, not just what it said about what it means to be a man and this kind of idea that there's one way of being a man, but also what it implies, you know, actually what it really says about what it means to be a woman. And the equation of staging with womanhood or the feminine, what it says to me is that that particular commentator thinks of staging or duplicity, untrustworthiness and so on as, as a trait unique to women or something kind of maybe inherent inherent to women. And I know that that might sound like a, a real stretch, but there's a whole literature on the history of language and the kind of gendered concepts that are that are associated with women. Particularly something that we refer to in in scholarship as a kind of binary logic. So this is the idea that men and women or the male and female are kind of opposite to one another, and we associate a whole series of character traits and behaviors and practices with men and with the masculine in inverted commas, and then the opposite of those things are associated with women or the feminine. So for example, common examples of this are that men are associated with mind reason, objectivity, nature, authenticity and order, whereas women are associated with the opposite of all of those things, with body, emotion, subjectivity, culture, inauthenticity and chaos. In that kind of ordering of binary logic, the masculine, although all of those things that are associated with the masculine or with men are privileged. So we privilege mind, reason, order, authenticity, etc. And we don't privilege all of those other things. When that commentator invoked that language and made those associations, whether he meant to or not, or whether he knew that history or not, he was actually reinforcing and repeating a binary logic which is shot through language and shot through culture more broadly and has long been a part of Western culture. And that's why it's problematic. It's a throwaway line that actually, you know, that he may not have meant anything by it, but or may not have been conscious of what he was saying, but he connected to this very deeply entrenched set of ideas about women. And that, to me, must be called out. What's really interesting about that to me, Kate, is that we have seen, you know, for example, Eddie Maguire trips up, has tripped up on a number of times and those kinds of moments where his language has let him down. His language has let him down in the context of media and social requirements as society is now trying to reflect back on itself as it is today. If you put those things back in 1970, 80, even 90s, that stuff was completely acceptable to the mainstream and to the majority of people and we weren't having this discourse on language. And so I think what we're seeing is 
and I'm using what are they called? Rabbit. I'm air using quotes. air quotes to say. <laughs> oh, no, they don't. But I'm using them to say current former players who are mm. speaking in the media will continually get tripped up with this because they have been conditioned by society. I don't believe that Brendan Goddard truly believes this of mm. women or mm. men. And I think if you were to present this body of literature to him, he would say, I don't believe that. Mm. And I understand that he doesn't believe that. But it is a shortcut for him to try and say what he's trying to say in that moment about Ben Brown. It has a lot of issues. What we're seeing, though, is that in having these conversations is that things are changing and there are structures that are changing. And we have seen that nowhere better than this week with Israel Folau, where the structure and the workplace agreement that he has been asked to sign has been put in place to be able to to protect people from the language that he wants to use. Another place that we saw that was the Melbourne International Comedy Festival has changed the name of the Barry Award, which was previously named after Barry Humphreys because of his language around transphobia and um, his transphobic comments, they have changed the structure of that award by renaming it to make it a more inclusive award because there was a real moment, an apex, if you like, where these two concepts met where an award named after Barry Humphreys was awarded to Hannah Gadsby for her show, which is all about language and not all about language, but all about a lot of things. And so they have changed the structure. But this week, Israel Folau has really, that moment has really changed the conversation because the structure's changed, Lucy. You're right. And on what you were saying, I think there is a muscle memory with language that people fall back on, especially when you're in front of a microphone or in you're in a time when you have to just think on your feet really quickly. When you examine language it's really important to also put judgment to the side. It's only in examining it and shining a light on it that people actually have the opportunity to change it. In terms of Israel Folau, he made a homophobic Instagram post and the difference this time is Rugby Australia came out very quickly and issued a very strong statement that said while Israel is entitled to his religious beliefs, the way in which he has expressed these beliefs is inconsistent with the values of the sport. They indicated their intention to terminate his contract Um, Earlier this week, another statement was issued and he has until I think it's actually today when we're recording to respond to that. Um, The sanction will be that he'll be terminated. In the past, there'd been some frustration around, um, I guess, the response to other you know, times when he had put homophobic views out into, into the public. And what's really interesting is we've seen the structures put in place and the warnings given so that in this instance, there's actually a very clear structure of, of what needs to be followed and, and how that will, that will proceed. There's, of course, been conversations around PC gone mad and is this the end of free speech? But I think it's actually quite clear. It's just he's been in breach of an employment contract. Um, I don't know what you guys make of it. Um, Michael Chaker, the um, Wallabies coach, was really thoughtful about this. He he was on 7.30 the other night and he had some very thoughtful things to say about sort of the notion of team and what he can say privately versus what he can say publicly and what anyone can and how important it is to have all these different personalities. The best takeout from it was he said, I don't know if it's fair or not. My role is to make sure the team is together under one banner. When you pull on the jersey, particularly the, the Australian jersey, that's meant to represent everyone inside that nation and that's why the team has to stand above everyone. So I really thought that notion of of inclusiveness and how 
it has to be for everybody um, was really important. And I loved how clearly he articulated that. Yeah. So there's a, many things about this that are really interesting to me. You're quite right, Lucy, that as I understand it, his contract has certain conditions in it and clauses in it that Rugby Australia have now relied upon in order to issue him with that termination notice. And employers do have the right to place restrictive conditions in contracts, limiting what their employees can say as a general principle. It's another question entirely about whether or how far employers can and should be able to go with those things. And so this is what I've mentioned before on the pod. The High Court of Australia is exploring this issue just at the moment in a really important case called Comcare versus Banieri. They recently heard arguments in that case, actually just a couple of weeks ago, and a decision from the High Court could come down any day. And it it deals with the question of public servants and free speech and their use of social media. But more broadly, I think it will perhaps engage with these kinds of questions. So I am really, really keen to see what the High Court says on that because I think they will make some comments about where the parameters can be drawn or should be drawn by employers more broadly. The other thing, though, that struck me about the Israel Folau case, and I know I talked about this with you all during the week, I thought about it from the perspective of fellow teammates, not necessarily in in terms of team cohesion, Nicole, as you're talking about, but in terms of their workplace rights as well. So in general terms, you know, employees have obligations to each other in the workplace. You know, if I were at work, I can't make racist comments to a colleague or in the presence of another colleague without potentially facing a range of sanctions. What strikes me about Israel Folau's comments is that, yes, they are made in a public domain, but they also impact upon or potentially impact upon his teammates as fellow employees with employment rights. I worry about, you know, what if one of those players in the team is gay or has a family member who's gay or, or, you know, maybe just takes offence more generally. In any workplace setting, they would normally have certain kinds of rights. And I think because this has played out on social media, we have tended to talk about it a little bit differently. That, to me, is a question that feels like it's been underexplored or not really discussed this week. Interestingly enough, the AFL kind of did get drawn into this because Gary Ablett and Matthew Kennedy, who um, are also religious, liked the post of Israel Folau. Gary Ablett then undid his like, but Matthew Kennedy's standing by it. it. These religious beliefs that he holds, they can't be a reason, like they can't be an excuse for what is hateful and hurtful speech. Well, that's right. And I think a lot of people are coming down on him hard and rightly so. You're entitled to an opinion, but you have to, if that opinion infringes on other people in a hateful way, keep it to yourself. And just a um, shout out to anyone who this week has been really affected by those comments. Mm. And again, having um, your authenticity and having your yourself questioned like that is a horrific thing. And we know that a lot of our listeners had to live through that with the postal vote. We know that it's it does have a really huge impact on your health, your mental health, the way you feel about yourself. But we see you, we hear you, we love you, we support you. And thanks for staying the path with all of us. Our next guest, Anna Scully, is one half of a formidable footy team. The other half of it is her husband, Eddie Betts. We welcome you, Anna, to the Outer Sanctum. How are you? 
Oh, thanks, girls. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be leaving the house and having <laughs> civilised conversations with you amazing women. So thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Uh, well, we're so pleased to have you. Eddie plays his 300th um, game this weekend. Of, co- of course, it's been across two teams. In the period of his playing career, your family and your husband and your children, you've all been faced with a lot of things that have been thrown up by living the life in the public eye of football, including of course, racial abuse. Life can be hard when you're living like that. How are you going? Look, to be honest, I don't feel like I'm too much in the public eye. Personally, I tend to dodge like Eddie's Instagram feed as much as possible. But I do understand um, the significance of Eddie's public profile. And with this, I um, understand that he has that platform to initiate important conversations with the Australian public. And this as a couple is something that we do take seriously. And with, in terms of racism, it's something that I've always acknowledged my privilege as a white person and therefore my experience is obviously completely different to Eddie's. Um, So I don't speak on behalf of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people about racism and my job is just to be an ally with Eddie and through this role I'm always happy to discuss with non-Aboriginal people about why something for Eddie like having a banana thrown at him is harmful Um, and disrespectful to his people, but I can't speak on behalf of how he feels or how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people feel about racism. And so for Eddie and I and being in the public eye and how our relationship works is we generally feed off each other for support and we're more of a partnership. Sorry, I'm talking a lot, but I do find also that one thing about being in the public eye and my experience with racism is that it can be quite isolating. So it can be that you're in quite a unique place people find it really difficult to talk about racism and I think people think that you have a lot of support around you and sometimes you actually don't Mm -hmm. and so it is really important that people do reach out and for Eddie's experience with racism, him seeing allies, so I I recently had that abuse on social media and you could see that Patrick Dangerfield, oh, who's the back line player for Richmond? Alex Alex Rance. Yeah, so I think Eddie seeing um, allies stand up is something that's really important to him during that period. And um, But I would always say that it is quite isolating because people just have this assumption that you have lots of people around you. So that would probably be the toughest thing for us. Anna, it's Lucy here. I'm wondering how much your children are quite young, but does that experience kind of come back into your family life and do you need to have conversations with your children? The way Eddie and I sort of raise our children, we're quite open. Um, We don't undermine them. They always know what's going on, um, but we just are careful the way that we um, discuss certain issues, which is A, culturally safe for them. Mm. And um, we talk about our experience. And I think by them seeing how we interact and by us being role models for them they can see how Eddie responds or how I respond and it's okay for children to feel different emotions and it is something that unfortunately they may experience growing up and so if we can equip them with good ways to deal with racism from a young age then I don't think it's harmful I think if anything it it's good that we've they've got Eddie who is a really good role model for them the impact on my children I mean they grow up with a whole diverse network of 
women and men in the AFLM and AFLW and they come into our house and they're able to interact with them and we just welcome all types of people and the kids just love the ever-changing network of people they get to meet and learn from and they're just such inspiring role models for the kids so I just think it's a positive impact really in the kids lives. Anna it's Kate here I just wanted to continue that conversation about family and the the impact of football on family. We, Mm. We hear a lot about the sacrifices that families make for athletes when they have a professional athlete in the family. We hear about things like missed birthdays and uh, weddings and other celebrations. And last year, you had one such really unique experience where you gave birth to twins and Eddie (laughs) missed that, unfortunately, but he saw the twins born on FaceTime. What was it like (laughs) to share that really intimate moment together, but mediated in, in such a way? Oh, well, <laughs> I, I don't, as a family, I don't think we miss out on much. We spend a lot of time with Eddie and at the end of the season we have a big break over summer. I am a slightly more impacted now by fo- footy as we live interstate, so it means Eddie's away every second weekend, but I do try and put it in perspective with other careers and I do think that we are lucky. I The twins, <laughs> it's actually funny, on the Friday I had a sports day with the kids and I was waddling around all day and I, I was <laughs> like, oh, and there we go, Eddie missed, you know, Lewis's sports day and so that's another example and he was a bit devastated for the first time that whole sports day. Oh. Um and I, I was really uncomfortable and that night, the Friday night, I couldn't sleep all night. I was in and out. I was in labour all that night. And I did call Eddie at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I said, babe, I'm really not going to hold on because we were booked in for a Caesar on Monday. I said, I'm not going to hold on. So I'm letting you know now it's either going to happen Sunday. So can you get the club to change your flight till seven o'clock on Sunday morning? Or you either get on a plane back now because I really don't think I'm going to hold on here. And he was like, you'll be right, babe. You'll be right. (laughs) (laughs) And so he did have that option. It was a a. 7am flight and we just sort of didn't think anything. And then literally at 7, I think it was 7.07, so the flight had already gone, my waters broke at home. Mm. And I was home with the two kids on my own and um, I just sort of called one of my girlfriends here in Adelaide and I just said, look, we don't need no man to have these babies. (laughs) You and I are going in. I don't know what I was doing. I actually remember I started putting makeup on. Like, what the <laughs> hell the was I doing? <laughs> God. Anyway, so then I so we went in and I just said to the all I could ask the doctor, I was like, can we hold this off? And he's like looking at me and he's like, look, I'll put you on the monitor. I was two minutes apart already. Oh. So he's like, there's no waiting here. That ship sailed. So, <laughs> yeah, that ship sailed a long time ago. He did FaceTime in and we've reflected on that, Eddie and I, and um, culturally, from his mob and I don't speak on behalf of any other First Nations people I'm just talking about Eddie and my experience it's something that in his family that women do anyway with either an auntie or sister and so Eddie and I've never really resented that experience and that was just how it was meant to be and we just move on and deal with it and we just he got back the next day he he was under pressure that week because he hadn't kicked any goals so he just went out and I know (laughs) he was so proud he just went out and I was actually refreshing the um, AFL like stats while I was in the NICU with these babies (laughs) going please kick a goal (laughs) yeah and they 
one. So it was it was a great experience. You've got us all tearing up in here, mm. Anna. Just oh, it talk to so let... much. No. <laughs> <laughs> We're all tearing up because of the emotion and just how um, authentic you are and um, what oh, a beautiful that's... ally you are as well as coming across so beautifully. Nicole? Anna, it's... I just... Hi, Nicole. How are you? <laughs> Sorry, Thanks. we're just all gathering ourselves. You know, the whole idea of being a, a partner or a wife for a footballer, it kind of feels like a almost a job on its own in some ways. I mean, there are a lot of women, obviously, who have the um, careers separate from that. But it, when you come into a club, is there like, I imagine there's no handbook as such, but is there a lot of guidance or is there any advice about how to handle it? Because you do have effectively a public profile or the potential for one. Do the clubs kind of give you rules about or recommendations for how you should conduct yourself? <laughs> oh, <laughs> funny, no one would want to give me a rule book, really. Um, yeah, I look. I, I wouldn't want to play down the importance of family members on elite sports people, whether partners, um, parents. Uh, mental health and particularly depression, anxiety is just so common. And the best people, I think, to know or to be alarmed of what's happening with the player is the family. And I, I don't think the clubs would really address like a sports person's family member or partner, but I do think they do understand more and more how important family members are for the health of a player. So, for example, the Adelaide Crows, they support our family situation very well. They allow... Some days I'm just had enough and I'll drop the kid, one of the kids in and Billy will go in and do weights with Eddie and they're really flexible around this and they provide access on game day to a crèche for us and no one really blinks an eye when I'll fly back with the team for a game and I think the environment that they do create is not a patronising environment but more that they do value and understand the importance of us. I do believe that over the, because Eddie and I have been together 11 years and I do believe that the landscape has changed and the club do promote and give more access to sort of welfare support and particularly us girls from interstate because when when you do first arrive at the club, the club is all the network that you have. Uh, I made friends outside by just oh, mummy, you know, being at the park or something, but they are your first sort of support network. So I did rely heavily on the people within the club. And as a partner and for myself, I do think that my role and Eddie's role um, has been we we foster the connections with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players within the club. And so I'm well aware of my white privilege, so I'm very, very lucky to learn from the boys and their culture. But I, I make our place uh, a welcoming pa- place for part- the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander partners and it's sort of an open and, open and safe environment for everyone to be able to be safe and talk about their experience. And that's sort of what I do as a partner is... Um, sort of foster those relationships because I think it's important for the Aboriginal players to have that connection. Anna, it's Alicia. Um, Hi, Alicia. Hello. (laughs) We've seen in the AFLW that a particular player is probably sometimes who you love, especially if you don't have a team. I've followed players from team to team. Eddie Betts is one of those players who annoyingly made me love Carlton (laughs) for a little bit and he certainly makes me love Adelaide. I would follow him anywhere. He's an amazing player. And I think I speak for all of us on that. Have oh, you felt you. support from other clubs? So when you're traveling, do you find that even uh, kids in other players' jumpers come up to Eddie and show support for him? Yeah. So he's oh, Eddie's such a unique person. He's 
I think if you can get someone from Port Adelaide liking you over here, <laughs> then, you, then you're doing all right. Um, he's just, he's really just a wonderful, caring and unique person. He's, he just cares deeply about the people and the people in the game. He cares about the women in the game. He cares about the staff. He's always had good relationships with staffing clubs. He's just respectful of people amongst the whole industry. And that goes for supporters. He'll always give his time to people, even if we're battling through an LA airport and someone stops us in LA. <laughs> that sort of so he'll always just give time to people. And I think that's just what it's about. It's about remembering where he came from, who he is, and always just staying grounded. And it's what it's the values that we teach our kids. And so if we're teaching our kids that we we need to live that and so that's just how we are and how Eddie is and I just think that type of personality is infectious I guess thanks for the kind words about Eddie because <laughs> it means a lot. And I have to tell you a funny story because once your husband was one of the key footballers at a footy clinic and um, I dropped my son off at it and when I went to pick him up I could see this crowd running around on the oval and there was Eddie being chased by about 40 young children who'd all made their shorts look as long as they possibly could to try <laughs> Must and be em- the days. <laughs> to emulate him and it was actually just glorious it's something that I always remember when I when I watch him play but I wonder um that stylistic choice is that something you've had something to do with <laughs> do you know the secret behind that is he's actually put on a bit of weight and so he was trying to hide behind it so he's like oh, if I just wear my shorts big then no one will ever know I'm like babe they're I've got Dexter scans these days, so you can actually can't hide behind your fat. Um, but it's really funny because on that topic, the dietitian always just goes, oh, as long as Eddie can kick the footy, I'm just going to ignore his fat oh. folds this week. <laughs> but that was the reason for trying those. He always just says it's because like, I'm a gangster, you know, I'm just a gangster. Anna, one thing that I've loved seeing is Eddie has obviously been incredibly supportive of the Adelaide Crows women's team. It's, a, it's hard not to be supportive of that team because they're amazing. So I imagine that your whole family, it seemed when I was watching all the social media videos, all of the players, and I'm specifically thinking about Ed Marinoff, seemed to have a really close relationship with your children. Having women in the club, how has that impacted you and your kind of relationship with football? We spend and put as much energy into the men's team as the women's team as a family. So we buy the memberships, we get to the games, we get around the people, we get down to the rooms after the game. We open up our house. So the girls have, we had all the girls over for dinner. We get to know them. Um, We really, really want them to feel part of the club and included and inclusive and equally as important as the men. We are so, so privileged and so lucky to be part of the inner sanctum Mm -hmm. of the women. Um, And so just being able to... I've a couple of the girls come around and look after, even when Eddie's interstate, a couple of the girls came around, they sit and watch the football with me. And they're just our family now. Actually, really funny grand final day. Because they're our friends, I felt so awkward asking for photos. And I said, I just didn't want to be like fangirl. And I'm a massive fangirl, like Stevie Lee, Chelsea Randall, Aaron Phillips, like fangirl. And I couldn't ask them. So Eddie happened to, um, he took me into the Carlton rooms as well after the game. So I got to meet Taylor Harris and 
and those girls. I was so excited and I was like, oh, I'm really nervous meeting these girls. And then I was talking to Chelsea Randall the following week at the football and I said, Chelsea, I didn't get a photo with any girls because I feel really embarrassed asking you because you're our friends. And she's like, oh, my God, Anna, we feel the same about Eddie. Let's <laughs> <laughs> have a rock, scissors, paper right now of who asked who for the first photo. So Chelsea and I have a rock, scissors, paper when I'm next with Eddie for who gets the first photo because we're all equally embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> well, Anna Scully, spending time with you has been an absolute delight and I think I speak on behalf of all of the Outer Sanctum and all of our supporters that we are going to want a photo with you, girlfriend, because this has been <laughs> thanks, the girls. most beautiful and enlightening chat. Thank you so much oh, for being... for having me. You've been such a good supporter of ours and it's been a privilege to speak to you today. Thanks, girls. Thanks for everything you do. Next, we're continuing our efforts to go around the grounds and hear from people doing amazing things in the community. My name is Kes Lorenz and I'm the first female president at Q Rovers Junior Football Club. You are also the daughter of Graham Arthur, who captained Hawthorne's premiership team in 1961 and was captain of the team of the century. Erin Phillips recently won the W Award and in her speech she said, when I was born people felt sorry for my dad because he didn't have a son to play footy someday and to carry the Phillips name. Well, you can stick it up those people who said that to you now, Dad. <laughs> yes, that's it, right. Does Emma. that resonate with you? It does, for sure. When we were growing up, and I've got five sisters, so I'm the sixth one, I was supposed to be the boy, the footballer, and we'd get that all the time as as a family, as girls. It's like, oh, you you know, when when's the boy? When's the boy? As soon as she said that, I just thought, oh, yes, I know exactly how you're feeling. What sort of changes have you seen in football culture? Community-based clubs and our local football clubs, due to girls playing footy, has just been bigger and wider and stronger. You know, we've got 400 registered players at Q Rovers. If we didn't have the girls, we'd be probably at 250 or something like that. Biggest challenge is getting players out on the park, actually, to get them all out on the park with their jerseys on, the right numbers, get there on the day, get their training set up. Um, And there's a lot of work in being a president of a local junior football club. We're all um, volunteers and we've got 15 on the committee and it's, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Look, I must admit, I, I did feel empowered to take this role on. I thought I could make a difference, concentrate on some areas of footy at club level, getting more female coaches on board, which is quite limited through um, local footy. That was probably my main thing, is increasing girls and making them feel confident and comfortable in a football club environment. How we want it to look like is a community-based club that everyone's welcome. It doesn't matter what gender, what age or what fitness level. Because as soon as you run out on that park... You are a strong person. doesn't matter what gender you are. You can make whatever day you want it to be for yourself out on that footy field. I'm really interested to hear about whether you and your family have retained a strong relationship with the Hawthorne Football Club. It's home, really, Hawthorne Football Club. Brown and gold blood through your veins, isn't it? During the 80s, Dad was the marketing major, so we were exposed to Hawthorne through and through. There was one day there that the Premiership Cup was just left there and we took it home. <laughs> and the next morning... As you do. Which yeah. cup was that? We did have yeah, a few. Yeah, was it 88? <laughs> so many, can't recall. And we had all these photos the next morning, right, in our pyjamas and dressing gowns. <laughs> and we were running late to get the cup back down to Glen Ferry. The phone was off the hook. There wasn't mobiles around then, right? Dad said, I've got to get down to Glen Ferry and, and I've got to get this cup back. And he got it down there like 10 to 12, you know, 12 o'clocks when all the players come out. But, oh, we had the best morning. <laughs> 
Like no one has. It was just left at the club. Jason Dunstall was there, and I just thought, oh look, I'll take it, Chase. So that's what I did. We took it home that night. There you go. I'm Chelsea Randall, and you're listening to the Outer Sanctum. Before we get out of here, um, any final business from my ladies? Change Our Game have put out some marketing and communication strategies for people who are bringing women into their clubs, which are really useful. So you can follow them on their Instagram page and that has a link to those guidelines. They're really useful. And we just want to do a quick shout out to Tigerland's uh, Rana Hussain and her new podcast with Tiff Cherry. It's the second episode. It's called Our Stripes. Uh, and yes, it's Richmond. Yes, it's footy, but it's so much more than that. Their second episode is called Balkan Boys and it's a chat with Ivan Soldo, Oleg Markov and Noah Bolter. And it's a great little, it's a great addition to the podcast world. I love Oleg Markov. Yes. He looks like an old fashioned weightlifter in a circus, <laughs> or I could see him in neck to knee bathers. <laughs> I just wanted to thank those listeners who heard our request last week to go on to iTunes and you know give us a review, a five star review, or leave some comments because that's a really good way of promoting the pod and bumping it up and bringing it into the awareness of other people. So thank you to those people who wrote those comments. We have seen them, we loved them, and if you haven't already. Please do. Also send us your audio. I'm a big lover of hearing everyone at the ground and uh, whether it's your local footy club, I've heard so many great stories of girls and women playing footy and also just the boys and men that are playing footy. So give us your audio. Just take it on a phone. Doesn't matter. We want to hear it. And finally, before we get out of here, I just want to do a big shout out to the Fangirls podcast with Emma Murray. It was not this week's pod. It was the one from last week. It is some compelling listening. You will be a better person after listening to this podcast, but it really opens up a whole conversation around mindset, mindfulness, especially through the prism of the Richmond grand final win. It's an exceptional podcast. And if you're going to keep listening to this one, if you listen to that one, I feel like that will be a leaping off point. I think we really want to further that conversation. Conversation. Um, that's us done for the week. Thank you so much for joining us again. We really appreciate your support. And there's nothing left to say, ladies, except for... Go, Go footy! footy!